Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com You're listening to Imaginary Worlds, a show about how we create them and why we suspend our disbelief. I'm Eric Malinsky. I often get recommendations from listeners for episode ideas, and one of the most common ones is to do an episode on LARPs. And if you just said, an episode on what? LARP stands for Live Action Role Play. And if you do know what a LARP is, probably the first thing that popped into your head were a bunch of nerdy guys dressed in medieval armor whacking each other with foam swords in a park. Those swords are called boffers, by the way, which doesn't help their cause. And the funny thing is, in the world of nerds and geeks, where I live quite comfortably, LARPing is often considered too nerdy and too geeky. Like, I was recently at a game shop playing D&D, and this guy was bragging about all the other role-playing games that he does. And then he said, yeah, but I draw the line at LARPing. Caroline Murphy is not surprised. Buffer fighting looks nerdy. Like, it just does. It just looks like I never want to see videos of buffer fighting. Caroline does a lot more than buffer fighting these days. She's a game master, or GM, which means that she runs LARPs. She often writes them, too. And yes, LARPs have plots and character backstories you're supposed to follow. As a GM, her job is to hover and watch the participants like a referee. A GM can also play characters that are designed to challenge the players or advance the plot, and sometimes they give puzzles to solve. LARPs are just ridiculously undervalued for for what they are. Like, you're getting a tailored, crafted story just for you and your friends for an entire weekend. That's incredibly valuable. Now, there was a time when people were embarrassed to admit that they were Star Trek fans, or, God forbid, Trekkies. Comic-Con used to be mocked. 
When I worked in animation in the 90s, cosplay was the thing you were supposed to hide. But now that's cool, even sexy. So are LARPs the next big thing? I mean, they're not just about swords and shields anymore. There are post-apocalyptic LARPs, there are LARPs set in space, costume ball LARPs, World War II LARPs. Caroline wrote a LARP where humans interact with fairies, which is not as cute as it sounds because the humans realize the fairies are using them as pawns in their very creepy courtship rituals. Half the players are humans that are trapped in the fae realm and they're playing a horror game. And then half the players are fae who have trapped these humans and they're playing a romance game. But the more I talked with Caroline and other game masters from around the world, I began to realize that LARPing isn't even a game anymore. I mean, I think that LARPing has evolved to the point where it's redefining what we consider a work of art or fiction. Yeah, I'm serious. If you don't know what's up with LARPs these days, you're in for a surprise after the break. Now, I always assumed that LARPing had evolved from Dungeons and Dragons. Like some guys were playing in their basement in the 70s and someone said, hey, what if we ran out in the backyard and pretended to be our characters? Evan Turner says that's not quite right. He is a professor at the University of Cincinnati who specializes in game studies. And he says to find the roots of LARPing, we have to go all the way back to the psychiatrist Jacob Moreno, who was a contemporary of Sigmund Freud. You know, at the time, of course, uh, Freud was much more popular, where, where you, you look into the individual psyche and, and feel like you can unlock all the secrets in, in your subconscious. And Moreno says, well, yeah, but you're actually composed of all these different roles that you, you take upon yourself, and they don't quite all jive together. And so, you know, part of what, what's therapeutic about the role playing is bringing out those aspects that you know are within yourself, but you, you're too embarrassed to socially reveal them without a fictitious alibi. Moreno's ideas were eventually picked up by the U.S. military during the Cold War, and they're trying to figure out how to interact with the Soviets during a crisis. The Rand Corporation was running these games in the late 50s and early 60s, and then they realized that the researchers were having too much fun, so they stopped. And that culture, nevertheless, you know, cult was, was continued to be cultivated in places like Stanford and MIT and never really went away. In the mid-60s, the Society for Creative Anachronisms was founded in Berkeley. They're the first to start doing the boffer-style sword campaigns. And then by the 70s and the 80s, all of this kind of merged with Dungeons and & Dragons and other tabletop games. I think that originally D&D and the early forms of LARP were kind of a U.S. phenomenon. There are a lot of attributes of them that follow U.S. culture. Lizzie Stark is a journalist who wrote about LARPing for her book, Leaving Mundania. Now she is a full-on convert and a game master. In kind of a classic fantasy LARP, you have a character. Your character has a level. Your character has hit points. Your character has skill points. Um, And to me, this sort of rehashes the American dream. You know, when you show up to a new game, you're level zero. And through steady hard work of showing up every month, your character inevitably attains wealth and power and influence in the game world. In the 1990s, LARPing branched out into different genres. A game called Vampire the Masquerade was a big hit on college campuses. But when Evan Torner tried it, he hated it. In fact, that experience is one of the reasons why he wanted to study role-playing from a psychological perspective. 
I, I could already sense this sort of weird tension between these people who say, oh, we're just doing this for fun. And then the minute they get into the game, you know, they're trying to dominate you and subvert your will. And I think that that, you know, that lack of, of consent and the sort of scene status of those who had the most power at the center of it created a lot of cult-like situations, let me just say, where, where people did not feel like they could leave or that they, if they left, they'd be shunned from their community. Now, by this point, LARPing was already a worldwide phenomenon. But when Vampire the Masquerade came to Norway, Denmark, Sweden, and Finland, the game itself began to change. The American rules for Vampire are very competitive. They want you to gain advantage over, over other people and the Nordic people just did away with that and concentrated on character and theme and atmosphere. And thus, a new kind of LARPing was born. Nordic LARPs. Eric Fotland lives in Oslo. He's a game master, but he's also considered an intellectual in the field. And he said in those early days, there was a lot of excitement around what made a Nordic LARP distinctive, but also a lot of trial and error, too. The first big LARP I did was uh, a LARP called Cubic Genesis, which was based to a large degree on George Orwell's 1984. So it lasted for five days. Uh, we played it in um, actually a building that, that had previously been uh, a mental asylum uh, and pretended that we were now some point in the future, there had been a nuclear war and we were on the ground. So for five days, people pretended to live in a uh, distant future, Orwellian totalitarian society. And uh, they would work in character, they would eat in character, uh, they would shit in character, they would sleep in character if they woke up in the middle of the night because the, uh, the thought police were ransacking their quarters, they would be expected to, um, to respond in character. And all of this made for, I think, quite a powerful experience. At least a lot of the players said afterwards that, wow, this, uh, this really changed my view of myself and, and the world. Uh, not a happy experience, but a very strong one. We also thought that in this experience, we needed to have some drama. You know, we needed to have something happening. It wasn't enough that people just hang out and pretend to live in this dark uh, totalitarian future. And so we added lots and lots of stuff. We added artificial intelligences trying to take over the planet. There was an intranet, which in theory you could hack. And there were all these science fiction plots. There were even time travelers from the future, a nuclear reactor blowing up and so on. For someone who was like deeply immersed into the third day of the LARP, waking up in the morning like, yes, I believe it now. I, I am a simple proletarian in the year 2097. Uh, I must go and get my coupons so I can get my food ration. And then suddenly there is like a, a time traveler from the distant future popping up in a cloud of smoke right in front of them. Uh, th this doesn't mix, you know. That's, it, it breaks the illusion rather than adding to it. So if American LARPs were dramatic, Nordic LARPs would be subtle. Eric once played a LARP that was set in 1942 in a Norwegian village that was under occupation by the Germans. And they played this LARP in the actual village. The locals just kind of watched from the side, as if the LARPers were ghosts from the past. Afterwards, we could compare notes with people who had lived through the war. And often there were surprising similarities. That, oh, okay, uh, you did this. Well, we also did that. Even in fantasy LARPs, they have a strong commitment to realism. A LARP based on Hamlet was played in the Danish castle where Hamlet took place. There's even a joke in Sweden about LARPers who get so fastidious about their costumes, they lose sight of the game itself. Uh, that Someone is a bad LARPer. He doesn't understand why you shouldn't sue your own leather boots for a LARP. 
Yeah. I, I, I enjoyed seeing also particularly the pictures from the American themed LARPs to see people in um, Nordic countries dressed as quote unquote Americans. <laughs> yeah. I, I played at the very first run of Just a Little Lovin. And there were a couple of American players there. And that was it was really uh, freaking me out to play with them uh, because I knew they knew much more about who these people were supposed to be and where they're supposed to come from than I did. That's interesting. Yeah, but it's part of, of kind of how LARP works, that uh, we create this temporary bubble, this temporary reality, uh, and we live in it for a few hours or a few days. Uh, and this reality follows the rules that we can remember. So if we're going to pretend to be people in ancient Rome, for example, we obviously can't learn Latin uh, to pretend to be Romans. We speak whatever language we speak, uh, but then we might change some other things. We might remember some key phrases, how to say hello, how to say goodbye. We might remember some ways to be polite, some things about the values of people in ancient Rome, like what is considered to be honorable and what is not considered. And as much stuff as we can cram into our minds and play, that's basically the contents of the world we're playing in a LARP. So we're just a little loving, which takes place in the, um, in the midst of the uh, AIDS crisis uh, in the early 1980s and, and uh, happens in... Uh, Saratoga, upstate New York. Uh, that's the setting of the LARP. But of course, it doesn't contain all the information that people from that time and that place would have about uh, the AIDS crisis or about uh, the state of New York or state of politics or anything. Uh, it contains a subset of it. When word got back to the U.S. about Nordic LARPs, there was a lot of interest. Evan Torner wanted to bring them over here, but the Nordic LARPs got lost in translation, even when they were supposed to take place in America. We were looking at the advertising for Just a Little Lovin', and the initial website said, you know, this is a game about HIV AIDS. I mean, there was a huge internet uproar at that term. And so, and, and at the, that moment, we're like, you're right. It's not really a game. It's, it's play. We're, we're, we're playing through it, but it's, it's, it's a LARP. Lizzie Stark had the same problem with a LARP that she tried to bring over here called Mad About the Boy. It was based on the Brian K. Vaughn comic book series, Why the Last Man. I mean, for copyright reasons, they didn't take any of the characters, but they took the basic scenario, that a plague has killed every man on Earth. The LARP is about a government plan to fertilize women, and there's a big debate about which women. And then suddenly, halfway through the game, the last man on Earth stumbles onto the scene because it turns out he was the only person immune to the virus. So we got accused of being uh, sexist and hating men and reinforcing gender divides. And we also got accused of being insufficiently radical and running a game that was anti-feminist because it was commodifying sex. And it was kind of, it, it ended up being kind of contentious, even though I think for the people who were actually there, the experience was good. Lizzie realized that Nordic LARPs were also playing into a class divide. They're appealing to people with postgraduate degrees and money to spare, because American LARPs usually cost 40 bucks. Renting the site and providing food to people, which was also kind of new, but very, really important for the, um, for the social experience of the LARP, was more expensive. So instead of 40 bucks, I think we had to charge like 120 or $130 for the weekend. We had to do the work of selling Nordic LARP to people and ensuring them that the experience would be worth it. I mean, now, of course, you know, there are LARPs with $450 tickets that are getting sold out in minutes. 
And remember the Boffer campaigns, those people that whack each other with swords? They were getting kind of annoyed about all this because it basically was implying that Nordic LARPs were somehow better, more evolved, and that silly, embarrassing geek stuff. And they pointed out that American LARPs were tackling serious subjects, and they were developing characters with a lot of nuance and a lot of depth. But this is what I think is so interesting. LARPing has evolved to the point where it's not really a game anymore. I mean, if you're so deeply invested in your characters and your story, there's no way to win a LARP, right? I mean, some people use the phrase, won the LARP, kind of sarcastically. Like, our characters won the LARP, and usually you win the LARP by being awesome. Um, whatever that means in the narrative that you're in. The <laughs> Nordic LARP uh, facilitators, some, sometimes we joke about collecting player tears for our GM vials. It's consensual crying, though. Consensual crying. Let's be very clear about that. When you experience the emotions of your character, you can't shake those emotions even after the game is over. LARPers call it bleed. And there's actually a small field of psychological studies on how to debrief after the LARP is over. In the simulation, there is some aspect of if I've shot someone in the head in cold blood in a game, there is some aspect of that that was real to my to me, and we need to then psychologically prepare people to I, to both do it and then to undo it, that then they can go on in their normal lives. The number one thing that is a problem in Bleed is having emotions, and especially like sexual emotions, transfer over from character to player. Again, Caroline Murphy. Because a lot of people uh, get into character relationships without really knowing all of the repercussions of what that can be like and not knowing exactly how to control it and not having clear conversations about what are the boundaries? What am I comfortable with? What are you comfortable with? Like, how do we make sure this works? And they don't have touch-up conversations about that stuff. And if you don't have experience doing it, then it can be very, very dangerous and gets people into a lot of hairy situations where... Like people are already in relationships and then they have their, you know, they have their out of game husband and then they have their in game wife. <laughs> and that can be a problem. Isn't that what you want, though, from reading a book or seeing a play? You want to feel something. You want to experience an epiphany and see the world through the eyes of a character that is not you. So couldn't you argue that LARPs are works of art? Yeah, I think, of course, LARP can be art. Almost anything can be art. Um, the question is whether it's good art. I think that one of the things that's really, really different about writing uh, as a, just a writer writing a novel versus writing a collaborative story with a lot of people is that you have to fight this impulse to want to control everything. Mm -hmm. And you have to fight the impulse to railroad people onto your storyline and your train, which initially people just fail at. Like it's, it's really, really hard to do that because you're used to writing a story that only you know, people are going to consume as an audience, not as participants. But the other thing is, if you put on a play, it can be seen by hundreds or thousands of people. A LARP can only truly be experienced by the players themselves. That kills me. Really? It kills me. Because I've told so many stories over the years. I've been doing this for 15 years now. And I've told so many stories over the years. And sometimes people will tell me a story that I told them, and I've forgotten it. And these are things that have changed people's lives where they're like, wow, this time that you did this thing and, and all, these all this stuff happened, it like changed everything for me, like an in and out of game level. And as a creator, that's a little bit crushing because there's this kind of existential question of legacy. 
Right. You know? Well, have you ever been tempted to write novels or other medium? Yeah, yeah. I've been working on that. Actually, I'm in like a writer's club now and we meet biweekly and just write things, just work on stuff. I feel kind of bad being like, you should be you should be doing screenplays or you should be doing TV or you should be doing plays. But then it's like, well, who am I to tell you what kind of art you should be doing? You know? No, I know I know what you mean though. And there's there's these times at which I've I feel like frustrated as a creator that I've created like something beautiful and that I can't show it to anyone mm-hmm. and that there's no way to show it to anyone and that even if I could show it to anyone I just don't know that it would be the same yeah like let's say we you know we uh, I wrote like an amazing parlor style game and there's cast characters and everything and every, I've, I've got the best cast that I could possibly imagine I've you know cast the all-stars of LARPing and I have like a 360 camera like sitting in the middle of the room. And so and, and maybe I set up a Twitch stream so everybody can watch as these characters interact and all these things. But there's so much going on at the same time. These two characters are off whispering in the corner. What are they saying? Meanwhile, this character's having a big fight with another character. There's too many threads that are going on at the same time. And they're all just so perfectly interwoven that you can't capture that. But I don't think it's frustrating. I think it's one of the things that makes LARP so special. Um, there are relatively few experiences left that are where you have to be there. I guess what I'm saying is, to me, it's a feature, not a bug. And it, there's something about LARP that captures the magic of the of the present moment. Which is so rare in our digital age, when even Snapchat is not as ephemeral as we want it to be. So what are LARPs? They're not games in the traditional sense. They're not like plays. And while I do think they're works of art, there's no category of art you can easily put them in. I asked Eric Fotlon what he'd compare them to. Well, LARPs are like sandcastles. Like, uh, you build them, they can be beautiful, but the moment they reach their perfection, uh, the tide comes in and washes it all away. And some LARP designers very deliberately uh, they design for the memory, they design for the story that is told after the LARP. You know, it's it's about the creation of memories. It's a temporary beauty, and I think that makes it even more beautiful. Designed memories. I think it's a pretty good category. All right, so to be honest, I came into this episode thinking, LARPs are really interesting, I'm going to research them, I'll talk about them, but I don't have to do one, Right. <laughs> But I'm intrigued and incredibly impressed. And I've been told don't make the mistake a lot of journalists make of just doing one LARP and then writing about it like you've had the definitive LARP experience. You need to try a few and figure out who you want to be in this world. So I will get there eventually. And I will let you know how it goes. That is it for this week. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to Evan Torner, Caroline Murphy, Emily Kerr Boss, Eric Fotland, and Lizzie Stark, who is not a fan of Game of Thrones, but yes, she knows the Starks are a big deal in that show. LARPers would actually um, G-chat me with spoilers. Like when the Red Wedding happens, they would text, they would just apropos of nothing, people I hadn't spoken to in months and months would be like, hey, How'd you feel about what happened to your family last night when they all died? (laughs) Imaginary Worlds is part of the Panoply Network. And let me know what LARPs you'd recommend. I tweeted E. Malinsky, 
You can join the conversation on Facebook. And by the way, I am going to have my first live show at the White Hotel in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, as part of the Work by Work on Air Arts Festival. It's going to be from 4 to 5 o'clock on Sunday, February 12th. So come on by. And I've mentioned before, you can help support Imaginary Worlds on Patreon. If you sign up to give $10 a month, you get access to a Dropbox folder that has extended clips and full-length interviews. And the interviews in this episode are really interesting. Just click the Patreon button on my site, imaginaryworldspodcast.org. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale, it's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.